Hey, Curbsiders. I wanted to remind you that we've just launched a brand new podcast called Curbsiders Teach. It has its own RSS feed, and it's hosted by Curbsiders regular Dr. Molly Hoyblein and newcomer Dr. Ira Krishnovskaya. They are fantastic clinician educators, and they have brought us the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. They're going to be doing expert interviews each week in this mini-series that's going to run for about three months. We hope you'll enjoy it, so check it out wherever you get your podcasts. That's Curbsiders Teach. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is Dr. Matthew Watto, sadly, without Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, but we have two great hosts for tonight's episode, which is on chronic pelvic pain, a topic that, personally, I knew very little about before listening to this wonderful episode with Beth Garbs Garbatelli and Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And with me right now to introduce this episode is the great Beth Garbs Garbatelli. So Beth, since Paul's not here, I'm going to ask you to do two things. I want you to tell them, remind them, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? And can you give them a little teaser about what they're going to learn on this episode? We are the internal medicine podcast, and we bring you practice changing pearls um, and really good clinical knowledge. And I think I just butchered that. I can't do what Paul does. Um, (laughs) I really can't. Um, It's clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and probably some bad puns as well. <laughs> and the, the sad thing is I probably heard that about a million times, but, you know, nerves and so, we're recording this at very late hour to our listeners. Yes. So tell the audience, what can they expect to learn? Maybe two or three of your favorite things that they might learn on this episode. Yeah, I think this was a really great episode. I was really, really glad we were doing this topic. I think internists get nervous when patients come to their office and bring up pelvic pain. It's a pain point for us or it will be for me, hopefully, next year. Um, I, <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we really did a great job of delving into sort of how to approach this in the primary care office. Um, I really appreciated the trauma-informed care approach to the physical exam, um, which our guest, Dr. Lambu, walks through, and also ways to think about pelvic pain in general, sort of like having a multi-organ approach. Um, it's it's a really good one. Yeah, she, she really had a well-formed way that she approaches this and she really geared her talk towards the internist which I very much appreciated. So let me tell you about Dr. Lamvu. She completed residency in obstetrics and gynecology and has an MPH in epidemiology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's currently a gynecologic surgeon and a pelvic pain specialist who maintains an active educational and research role as a professor at the University of Central Florida and director of the Fellowship in Advanced Minimally Invasive Surgery at Orlando VA Medical Center. She also serves as chair of the board for the International Pelvic Pain Society. She has more than 50 peer-reviewed publications on various topics related to pelvic pain and over 50 national and international poster, abstract, and video presentations. Plus, she talks all about how patients are cared for 
in a multidisciplinary approach this very complex topic that she makes much more simple for us. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. I'm not ovary acting when I say that this is a really great episode. Well played, Beth. I'm sure Paul is, you know, he shed a single tear or I don't know. He's really annoyed (laughs) right now. He doesn't know why because of that pun. Um, One other note for this episode. Um, We do use a case study of a female cisgender uh, patient who's having pelvic pain, but we want to note that pelvic pain can affect folks of any gender, um, any gender identity. So just to be extra aware of that and very sensitive in terms of the physical exam. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME and mock credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. We did want to mention that our guest, Dr. Lamvu, reports that she serves as a consultant for Sola Pelvic Therapy, AbbVie, and Solved Med. However, no trade names were used when possible on the show, and a balanced range of therapeutic options was included in the discussion. Well, Dr. Lamvu, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you mind if we call you Georgine for tonight? No, please call me Georgine. Perfect. It is my given name. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, Well, we'd like to start with some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? I am a pelvic pain expert or a pelvic pain uh, specialist, I would say. Great. And could you share just anything outside of medicine, um, things that, that you love or enjoy doing? Oh, I love reading and writing. I have my a family. I have a son and a husband that I adore. So they're actually my first love. Uh, and then I love to travel. Wonderful. Do you have any trips coming up or are things kind of limited with uh, the COVID situation? You know, um, we have been quite limited, but now my entire family is vaccinated and boosted. And so we are planning to go spend uh, Thanksgiving in Mexico. So we'll be eating tamales for Thanksgiving. <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> I did a little bit of a different Thanksgiving dinner um, last year myself. I made like a huge pot of bolognese and I kind of loved it. Like I kind of want to do something funky for Thanksgiving from now on. I'm not quite sure how the tamales are going to go. My son's already asked me, so what are we eating for Thanksgiving? And I said, (laughs) Mexican food. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Nice. Good luck. We'll have to share the recipe in our show notes if you have one. (laughs) In the spirit of Paul Williams, who is not here tonight, he generally likes to ask this question, so I'll ask it in his stead as somebody else who also likes to have a never-ending book list. Um, Are there any books, recently or not so recently, that you recommend to folks in medicine to read? Yeah, I actually have a few, uh, two of my favorites, uh, actually I would say three books. Uh, so my the first one that I always recommend to folks in medicine is a book by uh, Richard Harris, who's the NPR scientific correspondent. And he wrote a book uh, called Rigor Mortis. And it's a very interesting book that talks about the kinds of mistakes that we've made in science and how we incorporate them into clinical practice. I think it's just one of those very thoughtful books that makes you just step back and think about uh, give extra thought into what you would consider good evidence for changing practice. The second one is a book called Factfulness, and um, 
you'll probably be able to tell that I'm a big statistics person. <laughs> I love epidemiology and stats, but it's one of those books that is all about how we often forget to use facts to guide our opinions. And, and when we forget to do that, uh, we actually tend to be rather pessimistic and um, miss all the good things that are going on in life. And then I also, uh, another one of my favorites is called Drug Dealer MD or, yeah, Drug Dealer MD. And um, it's actually a very interesting book about the role of the medical community in the opioid epidemic. So I think that's, that was, well, I read that a couple of years ago, a few, maybe about three or four years ago, and it was very timely, but it was just one of those books that once again, made you just step back and think about your clinical practice and how important it is to just think about the things that we do. I'm not sure. Those if sound that's like <laughs> all those sound wanted, like fantastic <laughs> racks. Those like sound really good. I'm gonna like put those right on my Amazon cart. Those are, sound excellent and very like uh, topical for current sort of you know needing facts to sort of back up what we're going through with the pandemic and things like that. It really makes you think. Yeah. <laughs> Another question we like to hear from our guests is if you have a favorite failure that you'd feel comfortable sharing and what you learned from that. Uh, oh God, just one. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to mind. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, you know, I, I am into, so again, just in the, in the pain world, right? Because I live in the pain world. Um, some of my failures early in my career, right, involved uh, thinking very much like your typical clinician back in those days where we were just baffled by pain and we thought, well, there's just nothing we can do. Um, and so uh, for patients with chronic pain or in my case, chronic pelvic pain. And so in my residency and my medical school training, I grew up with that kind of mentality. And I actually very often think about this because it was not until I went into fellowship training that I learned a lot about pelvic pain. And it was not until I went into other subspecialties, the work of other subspecialties like anesthesiologists and other pain experts that were not in the GYN field that I actually learned how wrong we were. And I often think about how, you know, I would say I safely spent about five or six years of my early medical career having the same kind of dismissive attitude towards my patients uh, with pelvic pain. And I, I feel like it was not intentional, right? Um, but I wonder sometimes whether it was detrimental. And I wonder how many of my patients turned away frustrated and stayed in pain, right? Because I had that kind of mentality. So in my mind, that's a, a huge failure that I've learned from significantly. I mean, I, I focused on changing my entire career to make up for that deficit. And I hope that people don't make the same mistake I make and learn how to manage, how to understand, I would say. It's not managing, but it's understanding pain and how patients with pain are different than your usual patients. But that doesn't mean they don't deserve your respect and they doesn't mean that they don't deserve your care. I think that is a wonderful segue into our topic for tonight of pelvic pain. Before we jump into a case to get us talking about it, um, Beth, I, I know you love to share your amazing uh, baking-related picks of the week. So <laughs> I know, we can I can't help myself. <laughs> um, I'm not sure when we'll air this episode, but, you know, kind of the holiday season, and honestly, it's always pastry season in my opinion. So I wanted to recommend some recipes for babka. If our listeners haven't tried it, they should try baking it or at least try eating it. Um, two recipes that I really like are the Better Chocolate Babka from Smitten Kitchen. And that's a recipe that um, that blogger, um, Deb, adapted from Odo Lange's Krantz Cake recipe, which was in his Jerusalem cookbook. 
And the other one that I recommend is Uri Chef's Babka, um, which is he's uh, one of the bakers, like such, I think he's the owner of Bread's Bakery. Um, and it's a recipe from his book, Breaking Breads. And it's a fantastic Babka recipe. I actually have a hard time picking which one I like better. The Food 52 one from Uri Chef is probably a little bit more reliable, but I would recommend grating orange into it the way that you do for the Smitten Kitchen one. And if you really don't feel like baking, you can just order chocolate babka from Bread's Bakery. It's on Gold Belly now. So you can, if you don't want to bake, there's, there's an alternative for you too. And if anyone wants to bake these recipes and has questions, please tweet at me. I would love to talk with you about baking on Twitter. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I love chocolate babka. I don't think I'm ready to try baking it, but <laughs> it is a little say. daunting. <laughs> I I won't be baking. I cook actually quite a bit. I'm a super taster and I cook by taste. So basically, I can just taste a recipe and I go and I replicate it. I, I cook everything by taste. So That's awesome. that makes me a terrible baker because I'm <laughs> really horrible at following instructions. As it turns out, if you don't follow those instructions exactly, exactly, precisely like they write them, your entire baking experience turns out to be a very, it, it, it never works out for me. So I just don't do it. <laughs> It's a lot so harder. I'll be buying to... the babka. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, do you have any recs for picks of the week? I do have a quick rec um, of a series of books I listened to on Audible um, because they happen to be free and I was doing a road trip and started listening. But um, they are by Chantal Clayton. And one of them is called Next Year in Havana. And um, there are a few others in the series that are about a family from Cuba who um, moves to the United States and in the process of um, kind of the Cuban revolution loses their fortune. And just it's it's a mix of historical fiction and also kind of like beach romance and also uh, sort of CIA drama with very strong female characters. Um, so it's, it's just kind of a fun read. But also I learned a lot about sort of the history of, of the Cuban revolution and sort of what that's uh, that experience has been like for some Cuban Americans uh, living in this country. Sounds great. Hey, Curbsiders. I'm here to remind you about our sponsor, Locum Story. It's been a tough two years, and it looks like we're not through it yet. I know a lot of you are out there. You're thinking of a change. You're thinking, I got to change the way that I do things. Well, have you considered a different way of practicing medicine? That's right. I'm talking about Locum Tenens. This might be the right solution for you. So if you're looking for unbiased answers to all your questions about this, you got to go to locumstory.com. They can tell you about pay ranges, taxes, the various specialties available, and how locums might fit into your life. Because did you know that locums physicians, they make like 33% more on average, and you can do it in a variety of locations. Maybe you want to do something close to home, maybe you want to go to another state, or even another country. How cool does that sound? You got to let's let's get out of this place. Let's go practice somewhere else for a while and uh, make a bunch of money while we're doing it. And you can work locums as little or as much as you want. You are in control. And I know so many of us, we want control. So what are you waiting for? Get out there and do this. Maybe you want to keep your full-time job. That's okay too. You can turn your weekends or vacations into substantial income. And then maybe you want to retire early. You live in that fire lifestyle. I know you're out there. So where can you start? Visit locumstory.com. That's L-O-C-U-M story.com to peruse their trends by specialty tool, a list of the top 10 agencies, endless FAQs, 
and a quiz to help determine if Locums is a fit for your current situation. Again, visit locumstory.com to see if a Locum Tenums assignment is right for you. Let's jump into the case. Um, Beth, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, And excuse our punny name. This one is not our most egregious, but it's still pretty bad. Vic Pell is a 34-year-old woman. She's establishing care with you as a new patient. She says her main concern is pelvic pain, which she's had for about two years. The pain makes it hard for her to enjoy activities. She's cut back on exercising. She's not enjoying sex with her partner anymore. And occasionally, she's actually missing days of work because of how severe the pain is. Her periods are regular, and the pain doesn't necessarily correlate with her cycle. Um, We do want to get in sort of the differential of what you would think about for a patient like this. But before we start out um, kind of laying the groundwork, what are some of the definitions that you, you know, tap into when you're thinking about pelvic pain? Because I feel like as a learner, I've seen a lot of different phrases used for pelvic pain. Yeah. So, you know, technically chronic pelvic pain, which I, I like the terminology persistent pelvic pain a little bit better. But chronic pelvic pain is defined as pain that is perceived by either the clinician or the patient to originate from the pelvic area, which is anything below the umbilicus, including the lower back. And then it's a pain that uh, lasts longer than six months, and it's not responsive to the usual therapies, early therapies, like maybe a little bit of pain medications and things like that. I find that definition to have some good points and some bad points. The good news is that We've now, the new definition of chronic pelvic pain has given us the leeway to allow both the physician and the, uh, the clinician and the patient to have some input into what that pain really is. Um, and the other good news is that generally the new definition of chronic pelvic pain, although it's limited, uh, it's pain that's last been around for at least six months, it's generally should be pain that's associated with a lot of disability and impairment of quality of life. And if that pain has been around for less than six months, say, for example, three months, but it's associated with a lot of impairment in quality of life, including sexual function and so forth, then we can consider that chronic pelvic pain. So the new definition is a little bit more flexible than the older one. The other key thing about the new definition is that it now includes dysmenorrhea. So cyclical pain or menstrual pain that previously was not even grouped in the chronic pain uh, diagnosis, right? Like it wasn't part of the chronic pain diagnosis, but now it is. As long as that cyclical menstrual pain is one recurrent for at least, you know, three to six months and associated with a lot of impairment of quality of life. And so that's a great addition because we know that dysmenorrhea behaves a lot like all the other chronic pelvic pain syndromes. And recognizing that allows us to now identify, screen and identify really young women that are starting, you know, with cyclical chronic pelvic pain very, very early in life. And now we we know better. We know to, to not tell them, oh, it's normal and just, you know, it's a normal part of being a woman. Go ahead and just live with it. We, we now understand that if we leave young women or adolescents in pain, even if that pain is related to menstruation, it's considered chronic and it's not good. So that's the definition. Now, there was another question in there and I forgot it. <laughs> yeah, that was extremely helpful. I mean, in terms of like under the umbrella of chronic pain or dyspareunia and vulvodynia, like components you think about as like underneath that umbrella as like specific symptoms related to, for example, intercourse or dyspareunia. 
I do. Um, so chronic pelvic pain, like I said, it's anything originating in the area below the belly button, all the way to the back. So that includes uh, the vagina and the vulva. Now, technically, people are not really used to thinking about vulvodynia and dyspareunia as chronic pelvic pain, but many women who have these conditions report also having pelvic pain in addition to vaginal pain and sexual pain. And there is a lot of crossover between conditions that cause chronic pelvic pain. A lot of them, the same conditions are associated with vulvodynia and dyspareunia. So it is, it's actually very important to include in the differential diagnosis, and I don't like that term, and I'll explain to you why in just a minute, but it's very important to include in uh, uh, dyspareunia and vulvodynia or causes for dyspareunia and for vulvodynia in your evaluation of chronic pelvic pain. And what other kinds of diagnosis are running through your head when you're seeing a patient like this? Yeah. So first of all, if I was just to start spewing out the usual differential diagnosis for chronic pelvic pain, we would be here for a long time. <laughs> and it's really not helpful to clinicians. I mean, I could say things like, well, there's conditions like irritable bowel syndrome and interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome. There are conditions like pelvic floor myalgias and neuralgias. There's vulvodynia, there's endometriosis and ovarian cysts and pelvic inflammatory disease. I mean, I could go on and on. And so it's very confusing to clinicians. Or it's very hard for clinicians to go through that differential because it's so expansive. So I tend to get clinicians to change the way they think. And I ask them to think in terms of organ systems. So instead of thinking of individual diagnosis, think of organ systems. So if you have causes for chronic pelvic pain that come from the bladder or the urologic system, causes for pelvic pain that come from the bowel, right, or the gastrointestinal system, causes that come from the muscles and the neurons of the pelvis, uh, so musculoskeletal, and then causes that are uh, come from the reproductive organs in, in females or males as well. And then there are the neurologic or centrally mediated causes for pain. So if you, instead of thinking of 50,000 differential diagnoses, just think of first, which organ system is involved? So if you have a patient, for example, who comes in with pelvic pain, but she or he may or they also have urinary symptoms, you're now thinking, okay, there's probably something going on with the urinary system. If they have a lot of bowel symptoms, you're thinking, okay, maybe I'm now going to go down the differential diagnosis that are mostly bowel-related conditions. Now, the problem with the terminology differential diagnosis is that it assumes that you can exclude all the causes that are not related to this pain and end up with one differential diagnosis, which is not a good assumption for persons who have chronic pelvic pain because studies show that somewhere between 20 to 40% of patients with chronic pelvic pain actually have more than one cause for their pain. So we'll often see a, a urologic cause along with a gynecologic cause. Uh, for example, we'll see interstitial cystitis or a, a bladder pain syndrome along with endometriosis very, very often along with IBS. <laughs> so if you just are constantly thinking, okay, I just have to get to one diagnosis that's causing this pain, you're actually going to miss all the other potential diagnoses that are either um, contributing to this pain or maybe even the primary cause of the pain. So I encourage clinicians, especially for, let's say, our patient, uh, I forget what her name was, by the way. Vic <laughs> but, Pell. Um, I'm sorry, say Vic that again. Vic Pell. Vic Pell. I, so for Vic Pell, you know, she has 
non-menstrual pelvic pain and she has dyspareunia. Um, and she, so for her, I would, I would investigate a little bit more. Does she have any bowel symptoms? Does she have any urinary symptoms? And then try to figure out exactly how many organ systems are involved as part of the pain picture. I like that framework. We try to simplify things here on the curbsiders and that definitely helps to narrow down from that, you know, 150 list differential diagnosis that you can come up with. And I, I think also really highlights that primary care providers are really a great place to feel comfortable treating these patients because when we start sending them to specialists, it gets very, you know, they only address the IBS, but not the pelvic floor myalgias. And and then the patient sort of feels lost and misheard. So hopefully we can help primary care providers feel confident after this episode, or at least a little more comfortable. And um, I, I love the way you use the terminology. It helps the patients. I mean, some patients feel lost. And that's absolutely true. And one of the reasons patients feel lost is because of the language that we use with our patients, right? So if you're stuck on one diagnosis kind of person, if if you're the kind of clinician that just has to have one diagnosis in the differential diagnosis, you tell the patient today, okay, I think your pain is due to endometriosis, but because you have some urinary symptoms, let me send you to the urologist. So patient goes to the urologist and the urologist says, well, I think you have interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome, right? And then sends the patient back. So now this patient is, you know, they get they get confused. Well, which one is causing my pain? Is it the endometriosis or is it the bladder pain syndrome? And you know, if she has, if she was seen by a gastroenterologist, she might get some, you know, diagnosis of IBS. And so that is very confusing to patients when we just focus in on that one diagnosis. And we have to be very careful with our language to use either multi-system diagnosis together and explain why that is. Or if we don't know which one is the primary cause of pain, then just say, I don't know which one is the primary cause of pain because there are multiple things going on. And you know what? Our patients are super smart, especially our chronic pain patients. I swear to God, they're the smartest people. They go online and they research and then and, and once they figure out, oh, okay, uh, I have multiple diagnoses and my doctor told me this makes sense and I'm not crazy, they have a much easier time understanding. Multiple diagnoses are possible multiple therapies are needed, and things are a little bit more complex than just having one reason for the pain. And you alluded to this a little bit. Could you um, explain to us what visceral-visceral cross-sensitization is? Yeah. So the thing about it, and actually this was, um, we figured this out initially early on uh, from a work done by a woman called Ursula Wesselman. A wonderful chronic pain specialist. I think I believe she's actually a neurologist. Uh, has done a lot of research in pain, uh, female pelvic pain. And very early on, um, what she did is she took mice and she stimulated the uterus and the neuron pathways that innervate the uterus. And when she stimulated those pathways, the uterus would contract, but she also noticed the bowel would contract <laughs> at the same time. And she eventually went on to replicate this many times, and she showed that whenever the bladder is hyperactive, then the, the bowel and the uterus can become active, hyperactive. Or if the bowel is hyperactive, the bladder and the uterus kick in. And so from that work, we realized that these new, these pelvic organs they share the same neural pathways. And the way I explain it to my patients is that, you know, in the upper body, you have one neuron coming from the spinal cord to your left arm, another one going to your right arm. Everything is kind of very well sectioned. But in your lower pelvis, 
you don't have just one neuron going to the bladder and one going to the uterus and one going to the bowel. What you have is a spider web of neurons that kind of cover the entire pelvis. And although some of them are specific to a particular organ, there are some neurons that touch multiple organs and they get the organs send input into those neurons and it goes up the spinal cord. So the spinal cord is receiving input from multiple organs at once. And it's trying to send signals via the same pathway. And when when it does that, it sends it into a web instead of just one direct line. And so that that means that a signal that may have been meant for, you know, the uterus, it may also affect the bowel. So the signaling goes both ways. So visceral visceral convergence means that there are there are connections between the organs and that all these organs feed into the spinal cord at the same time. And so it is not unusual for patients who have a problem with, uh, say, for example, the bladder to also experience bowel symptoms or, say, patients who have dysmenorrhea or menstrual pain to experience bladder and bowel symptoms while they're having this uterine pain. And so it's very confusing in the uh, pelvis. But the reason it's important to know about visceral visceral convergence is that it helps us understand why patients come in with these types of confusing symptoms, right? Um, so when you have a patient that comes in and she has really bad menstrual pain, and then she also tells you that I have nausea and vomiting when I'm menstruating, or I have urgency and frequency when I'm menstruating and in pain, that patient is not crazy. It's just the way that the pelvis works sometimes. And it's very important because then we can validate our patient's symptoms um, just because we understand the science uh, of the pelvis a little bit better or the neurobiology of the pelvis a little bit better. Wow. Thank you for walking us through that. I feel like that is such a helpful way of conceptualizing the pelvis and like the way the organs are sort of all interconnected. And also, I'm going to definitely steal some of those phrases for when I'm describing this to patients because I think it is a challenge to kind of talk about this. But I think that, yeah, hearing hearing people and making people feel heard um, and giving them as much of the information about this complex physiology, people can understand it. It's 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 something that does make sense when you talk through it like that. So thank you. And in terms of our patient, you know, what are these next questions that you would want to ask them, you know, history questions besides um, besides what we already talked about that may be kind of leading you towards the next t- t- testing and treatment? You know, are there any other um, exam findings you might be looking for on physical exam? Yeah. So in history, I try to stick to the five organ systems. So I'll ask about, regardless of where the pain is coming from in the pelvis, I ask about bowel symptoms, bladder symptoms. I ask about myofascial symptoms, like, for example, pain that gets worse at the end of the day and relieved by sta- by uh, laying down or pain with intercourse. That's another big symptom that's consistent with uh, myofascial pain. And then, you know, don't forget, so there's four, symptom, four symptoms and then the reproductive organs uh, or, or the reproductive system, I ask them about, does your pain change with menstruation? That's a big one, right? That, uh, Or um, is it worse around times of ovulation, for example, if you can tell when you're ovulating? And make no mistake, a lot of women know exactly when they're ovulating. So <laughs> don't think that, you know, uh, when they tell you that they're making that up because it actually turns out to be true. And then the neurologic symptoms. And to me, neurologic symptoms, um, I group those as in, I think about central nervous system symptoms and also peripheral nervous system symptoms. So for the central nervous system, I ask about mood symptoms. So 
depression, anxiety, problems with sleep. Those would be centrally mediated processes, right? And then peripheral questions would be something like, okay, does your pain radiate anywhere? Does the pain feel like it's burning or it's sharp, right? And those questions help me differentiate if I have a peripheral process, then is it is it consistent with a neuropathy? And so when a patient tells you about the pain, yes, it's very important to figure out how severe the pain is, when did it start, how long does it last, what makes it better and what makes it worse. But then you really want to hone in on the associate, associated symptoms by keeping in mind those five organ systems. And then when I do my physical exam, I think in the same exact way, five organ systems, right? So I start with my central nervous system by looking at the patient's mood and affect, you know, I try to determine whether they have any signs of anxiety or depression or rumination or maladaptive beliefs, you know, like a big one is, oh, I, my pain, I, I can't exercise because it makes my pain worse, right? And when in reality, we know that activity actually makes pain better or it can help with flare. So maladaptive beliefs. So that's all central nervous system, right? Signs of, you know, if they look really tired, <laughs> like they haven't slept in days. And that's a very, and the nice thing about these, the central nervous system is you can very quickly assess that just by looking at the patient. And while you're talking to them, you don't have to do a lot of special things. And then I move on to the musculoskeletal system. I start with an external musculoskeletal exam. I do the abdominal exam. I do the back exam. I tried, you know, leg bend, bend forward, all those things that uh, would indicate that the patient's pain gets worse with movement of the, of the anterior abdominal wall and pelvic muscles. And then I'll do, if I find any localized areas of pain that are external, I'll, you know, lightly touch those with a Q-tip to look for allodynia, uh, or maybe I'll try and figure out if they hyper, they're hypersensitive, meaning the pain is way worse than expected when you just apply a little bit of pressure or maybe the wooden tip of the applicator. I look for localized areas of pain and for patterns of radiation, right? And things like trigger points and scar pain, right? So all of that is done... Um, is as part of the external exam, uh, external myofascial exam. And then I go to, if the patient gives me permission and it's a female, I'll go to a single digit internal vaginal exam. If you have male patients, then you would, this is where you would, the rectum is really the only way that you have of assessing the uh, pelvic floor muscles in a ma male. So, but for a female, you would just do a very gentle internal uh, digit exam with a uh, lubricated hand, uh, glove, a gloved hand. And you just push on the different pelvic floor muscles in a normal uh, female pelvis. can It can tolerate as much as two kilograms of pressure. Uh, so that's enough that if you push on your hand with a, your index finger, the area that you're pushing would blanch. So that's how much pressure the, the pelvic floor muscles can tolerate. So in a patient that doesn't have any involvement of the pelvic floor muscles, they'll say, yeah, I feel it and it's pressure. But if they report, you know, severe pain with even light touch or light pressure of the pelvic floor muscles, you're now going to suspect pelvic floor involvement. And then if the patient tolerates a vaginal exam, uh, then I'll do the speculum exam last. And the speculum exam really in a, in a chronic pelvic pain patient is indicated if, you, if she has a history of worrisome vaginal discharge or irregular bleeding. But generally, the speculum exam is actually uh, negative. But if that would be a time when you could collect your vaginal cultures and your pap smear and, and so forth. Um, and my uh, bimanual exam, I actually do that. So this is where we are palpating the uterus and the ovaries. I actually do that when I'm doing the single digit exam. So once I'm done with the speculum exam, I'm done. So the patient can 
just take a nice sigh of relief. So that's how I evaluate the patients. But always, I keep the five organ systems in mind, because I think if you do that, then the whole differential diagnosis, excuse my use of that term, and the physical exam can be quite standardized. And you could get used to doing that same routine every time, and it can be quite efficient, uh, even when you're seeing a complex uh, pelvic pain patient. And you kind of wrapped this into your discussion of the physical exam. And we have an episode on this topic of trauma-informed care, which we'll link to in the show notes. But what are your tips for approaching this exam with a trauma-informed approach, given that um, these patients may be having a trauma history and may be very sensitive to pain? What what ways do you um, work through that for the physical exam? What tips do you have? Um, This is such a hugely important topic. And it has to start with an acknowledgement of the fact that a lot of our pelvic pain patients have a history of trauma that can influence how they react to our exams. And that history of trauma, it can be, you know, the obvious things like physical trauma, sexual trauma, military sexual trauma, but it can also be the fact that they have had traumatic pelvic exams for their entire lives. And every time we do a pelvic exam, we re-traumatize them. And so trauma-informed care Uh, is so essential. And what that means is that for all the chronic pelvic pain patients, you should do some kind of very basic screening to determine whether they've had a history of trauma, meaning physical or sexual trauma, as well as a history of painful pelvic exams, number one. Once you've done that, then it's, and I would say this is true for all of our patients, but You need to really not assume that just because the patient is there to see you for pelvic pain, they actually want you or would agree for you to do a pelvic exam. And so you have to get consent for the pelvic exam. Verbal consent is is fine. And you also need to educate the patient first by validating their trauma history and saying to them, I know you've had a bad experience, but you are in control of this visit today. If you want me to stop anytime, tell me, I will stop. We don't have to keep going. We don't have to re-traumatize you. If there's something that you want me to do differently, uh, like maybe we'll break up the exam in portions or maybe even delay the pelvic exam, you have to give the patient that option until, because sometimes, you know, building trust takes more than just that initial visit. And so maybe the patient is not ready for you to do a pelvic exam at that particular point, but she may be ready at a later date. And the other thing is being very careful with our language, right? I mean, saying things like, well, first of all, if you're doing a pelvic exam, you know, your head is down, uh, the patient's in lithotomy and your head is down below the level, uh, eye level of the patient. So you can't see what her face is doing as you're doing the exam. So the nurse has to help you kind of just pay attention for verbal and nonverbal cues of discomfort because sometimes patients just can't verbalize and you have to look at their facial expressions. The second thing is just move very slowly and explain to the patient what you're doing and give the patient a second to absorb the information that you're giving them. So it really does not make sense to say, you're going to feel some pressure now and the speculum is already in. <laughs> Okay, you you have to wait. You have to say, okay, when I insert this, you may feel some pressure. Are you okay with that? And then proceed to the next step. So the pelvic exam all of a sudden becomes much slower and much more conversational, as I like to say, because you really have to communicate with the patient as you're doing it. And then really do 
avoid triggers. So saying to patients, I, you know, relax, just relax your legs. Well, you know what? They probably heard that same thing from the person that was victimizing them. Telling someone to relax during a pelvic exam, one, can be hurtful, but two, I don't know a single person that can relax during a speculum exam, whether they have pain or not. It's just an uncomfortable experience. So you asking the patient to do something that is already very difficult does not make the experience any better. So you might want to say, okay, let's walk through and let's do some deep breathing. Let's focus on having you, as you're breathing, push your pelvis down into the table because that will release the pelvic floor muscles and and make this more tolerable. Don't make it seem as if the pelvic exam should be comfortable. It never is. So I like to use words like tolerable, or you may stop me whenever you want. I always ask for permission to stop and restart the exam if the patient wants to. And sometimes like you have to be very careful, like even just having the door closed in an exam room for a patient that, like for example, some of my veterans, even just sudden noises or sudden movements can startle them. And if they get startled, the pelvic floor muscles contract. And then we have pain and the whole experience goes bad. So just be very careful with your language. Avoid bedroom language. Do spend time building trust. Do communicate with the patient. Ask the patient, do you want me to tell you what we're going to do? Some patients say, no, just get it over and done with. In that case, you know, you need to just not talk too much, but do be gentle um, and efficient. And those are just some of the things that I think about when I think of trauma-informed care. But I think if you ha- if I had to summarize trauma-informed care into two words, I would say trust and control. The patient has to be able to trust you and they have to be able to control the examination. Thank you. I think that was such a great review and, and just so important in examining these patients. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Audience, you know I'm a huge fan of BetterHelp. You know I've used it myself. You know that I waited way too long to address all of my issues and probably uh, still have a lot of work to do, definitely still have a lot of work to do. And I want you to do that work for yourselves because you deserve it. And it's easier now than it has ever been. So you have no excuses. Here's what's going to happen. Better help. They will assess your needs and they're going to match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And that's going to happen in under 48 hours. And this is not self-help. This is professional therapy that's done securely online, and it's available for clients worldwide. You can schedule a weekly video or phone session with your therapist, or you can message them anytime and you'll get a prompt response. And beyond that, they want you to like your therapist, and that doesn't always happen on the first try, so they make it easy and free to change if it's not working out. BetterHelp is also more affordable than the traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available so start living a better, happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com curb. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Use the special offer for Curbsiders listeners and get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. That's betterhelp.com slash curb. When you're 
doing the exam, you mentioned a little bit of the things that you're looking for for neuralgia causes in terms of hyperalgesia or allodynia kind of on the external exam. What exam findings point you towards myofascial pain? I think a lot of primary care doctors are comfortable doing PAPs, but don't do a lot of kind of muscle examination. So could you describe how you determine that? Yeah. So on the abdominal exam, and it's interesting because a lot of primary care physicians do back exams. And they're very comfortable palpating the back, having the patient do some maneuvers, movement maneuvers. We do the same thing for the anterior abdominal wall, right? We palpate the abdominal wall, and then we ask the patient to contract the abdominal wall, and we palpate again with the muscles contracted. And if the pain gets worse with contraction of the muscles, we suspect a myofascial origin for the pain, or at least either primary or secondary, but uh, myofascial pain. Now, for the pelvis, it's actually very simple. Uh, the myofascial pelvic exam is all about the single-digit portion of the exam. Um, and that's how you figure out whether someone has myofascial pain. Um, and so you can just insert a single digit into the, into the vagina and then go very systematically like the face of a clock from 12 o'clock all the way back around and just push on the different structures. And you don't even have to know the muscle names. I won't bore you with that. But if you're pushing and the patient reports more than just pressure, or if she says something like, yeah, that's the pain that I feel, then you should suspect a myofascial pain. And, you know, I read in a lot of books that you should try your best to replicate the pain. Well, that may not be a good idea in a patient who has, you know, a history of pelvic pain and of pain during intercourse, you can't possibly apply enough force to replicate what the patient is experiencing during, say, for example, intercourse. So you don't need to go that far anyways. It doesn't matter. You could just apply, you know, mild to moderate uh, pressure. And if that elicits pain, then you know you have a myofascial pain. Let's say, for example, you forgot to do the single digit exam because, you know, you have to build up the habit of doing that first. But let's say you forget to do the single digit exam and you insert the speculum and the patient reports a lot of pain with the speculum insertion or opening of the speculum. And I'm, of course, making the assumption that you're not just like, you know, pushing the speculum in there and opening it really wide suddenly because that causes anybody pain. But if you insert the speculum slowly and you open it and that causes the patient a lot of pain, you should suspect a myofascial uh, problem. And then, of course, like I said before, dyspareunia, right? If someone has dyspareunia, you need to put myofascial pain at the, at the top of your... Again, forgive my language, differential diagnosis. <laughs> so for our patient, let's say we do get a little bit more history and there's no major red flags that we hear or concerns um, for a trauma history. She has seen a, a PCP in the past for this without any resolution. Um, she does do a pregnancy test and an STI screening at her last um, recent PCP visit in the UA. They were all normal. Are there any other tests or imaging that you recommend getting for a patient in this initial workup? The only one that I would recommend consistently is the pelvic ultrasound, right? So with the pelvic ultrasound, you can look at the uterus, the ovaries, the bladder, and you can rule out most mass-related causes, reproductive causes for pain. So fibroids, uh, ovarian cysts, and things that could cause chronic pain but are also relatively easily treatable. And that's it. There really is uh, no other test that would be indicated initially. Now, 
if a patient has a lot of GI symptoms, well, yeah, you and and or if she gives you any signs of rectal bleeding or things like that, then yeah, of course, a colonoscopy. And I think most primary care physicians are comfortable with that. But if it's just pelvic pain and urinalysis and pregnancy tests are negative, the ultrasound is the only thing that I would recommend in addition. And, and you can if, if that is negative at all. And I have to just explain and point out that it's very important to tell patients in the setting of chronic pelvic pain, the majority of the time, diagnostic testing is negative, And it does not mean that you don't have pain, nor does it mean that I think you're crazy. None of those things. For most causes of pelvic pain, the diagnostic tests that we have or imaging that we have they're not picked up by those diagnostic tests, right? So endometriosis, most of the time the ultrasound is normal unless someone has an endometrioma. IBS, uh, I see a bladder pain syndrome. Imaging is going to be negative, but it does not mean that the patient does not have pain. And it really helps to have that discussion with them. And number one, set up the expectation for negative tests. <laughs> and number two, help them understand that just because there's a negative test, that doesn't mean we're not going to initiate treatment. It doesn't mean that we don't believe them um, and so forth. And what are some first-line treatments that a primary care provider should feel comfortable offering? What a great question. This <laughs> is my favorite question. Um, so it's not as hard as you would think. <laughs> The first thing is determine, so first, when I think of treatments, I think of very few things. I think about analgesia. I think about hormonal suppression, whether it is needed or not. I think about behavioral modifications. And then I think about physical rehabilitation. And the fifth thing that I think about is additional interventions. So based on the things that are potential causes for the pain. The easiest one to pick out is whether the pain is cyclical or not. And if the pain is cyclical, the first thing you should offer the patient is suppression of that cyclicity, which means suppression of menstruation. And so continuous suppression of menstruation with a birth control pill or a progesterone pill is completely within the purview of the primary care physician. Now, the second thing is analgesia. Right, so analgesia can come in many different ways. NSAIDs, right? Things like acetaminophen, heavier duty pain meds, muscle relaxants. And the way I I think about analgesia is I start with the easiest and medications that I'm most comfortable with. So lower moderate dose NSAIDs, acetaminophen, and if I think someone has a myalgia component to it, then maybe a muscle relaxant. Then the next thing would be behavioral modification. Find out what is it that the patient is doing or what's in their history that is making their pain worse and get them to stop. (laughs) And while you're at it, encourage increasing activity very slowly. And then physical rehabilitation, which is usually physical therapy, and we do have specialty pelvic floor physical therapists. So if hormonal suppression, a little bit of analgesia, changing behavior and physical therapy does not help a patient, then now you're talking about recruiting some help from a specialist. The one thing that I have to say is for most of these pain syndromes, when patients show up at the primary care office, they're showing up at the early spectrum of the disease, right? Early IC, early IBS, and early disease, early, when you look at early spectrum 
of a disease, those patients usually respond to minimal interventions. They do respond to behavior modifications. If you have a patient with a lot of urinary frequency and urgency, and she tells you, I notice that my pain gets worse when I drink alcohol, or I'm peeing a lot, but I'm drinking 100 ounces of water because I read on the internet that drinking water is very good for you, you can very easily tell the patient, okay, stop with the alcohol, stop with the caffeine, and please limit your water intake to 60 or 64 ounces, which is more than enough, because if you're drinking 100 ounces a day, you're going to pee all day. And so those kinds of things you pick up in the patient's history, and maybe not in the first visit, but maybe it's the second or third visit, but behavioral modification is very, very important. And you mentioned kind of uh, sort of if if those are not successful, referring on to a specialist, um, just so we have a kind of a general sense of what we're sending people on to, what kind of treatments do you offer in your clinic? So we have an interdisciplinary setting. And so it's not a very common setting because we actually have in our clinic, we have, let's see, four pelvic pain specialists, <laughs> which, you know, it's everybody's dream. Um, we have... Um, clinical psychologists and psychiatrists, we have GI and urology all available to us in our system, in our actual same space. Um, So, but if you don't have that luxury, I think for the most part, you have to find specialists that kind of feel comfortable ruling out or evaluating for other gynecologic causes. So things like endometriosis and things like that. And, And usually those people feel more comfortable doing hormonal suppression by different means, more than just pills. So IUDs, um, nexplanons, um, if there is bleeding or cyclical pain, you know, they may even feel comfortable doing ablations and hysterectomies and so forth. In our clinic, our GYN pain specialists also treat interstitial cystitis so or bladder pain syndrome. I, I keep using the old terminology because that's what most people are familiar with, um, but it's important to recognize there is new terminology. And so For bladder pain syndrome, we go through the gamut. So first-line interventions for bladder pain syndrome includes behavioral modification, education, stress reduction. Second line is physical therapy. Third line are things like medications and bladder installations, and we can even use Botox and neuromodulation for patients that have a lot of urgency and frequency with their pain. So those things we do in our clinic. But in the real world, to get those therapies, you may have to refer to either a urologist or a urogynecologist. Um, we also, in our clinic, manage IBS, constipation, and diarrhea, and we do that with first-line treatments, which are dietary changes. And then if a patient has a lot of constipation, we'll use fiber, water, and uh, stool softeners or osmotic laxatives. If someone has um, diarrhea, then we'll use same kind of behavioral modifications, but then we'll use antispasmodics. And then before we initiate other FDA-approved meds for IBS constipation and IBS uh, diarrhea, we usually get a colonoscopy and make sure that that's clear. And then we'll start medications like, for example, lubepristone or um, for IBSC or um, rifaximin, I want to say, for uh, IBS diarrhea. So we actually do medical therapy, but Usually we do that in conjunction with our um, GI colleagues. And then uh, for myofascial pain, pelvic floor physical therapy and muscle relaxants. So we have a pelvic floor physical therapist in our clinic. And then for patients that have symptoms of central sensitization, we use our behavioral health and clinical psychologists for 
pain education, and then behavioral modification, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. What's another one? I'm trying to think of some of the therapies, but they, behavioral specialists know all of those different therapies. And then the last thing is um, sometimes, you know, we have to get help. For example, if patient has really bad sleeping function, uh, really bad anxiety and depression, then we'll request help with pharmacotherapy for those things. Um, trying to think what else we have in our clinic. What did I miss? Neurologic. Oh, and uh, so we also do, um, we do pelvic blocks. So we'll do pudendal, ilioinguinal, genital femoral blocks. Um, and we do pelvic Botox injections or trigger point injections for myofascial pain. And then sometimes we'll get our anesthesia colleagues to do spinal blocks uh, for patients that just don't respond to the spinal, uh, to the local injections. And then um, we use both peripheral and central neuromodulation. So we, we can do peripheral nerve stimulation, but we also can do things like interstem and, and so forth. You know, our clinic is our dream setting, but for a primary care clinician out in the real world, they'll have access to all of those resources maybe 10% of the time, right? And so the question is, what do you do? <laughs> so... Um, Here's my suggestion. The first thing is to really educate your patient and explain to them how chronic pain can be multifactorial and much more complex than, you know, say a bladder infection. Use all the online education resources that you can to educate your patient. So www.pelvicpaineducation.com, uh, painguide.com, the Chronic Pain Research Alliance website, which is Chronic Pain Research. Uh, com. All of those websites have really good educational materials to help patients understand what's going on with them. And then try to find in your community the basics of pain management. And I would say that is a pelvic floor physical therapy specialist and a behavioral health specialist. I think if you can find those two things then you can at least teach the patient non-interventional ways of mitigating her pain. And you can use behavioral modification to help change, to decrease pain severity. And then that will hold you or will hold the patient off, will help the patient at least until you are able to find them a GI pain specialist or a urogynecologist or a, a, a pain gynecologist or a pain urologist. And for those folks, you actually have to do online searches to find those specialists. And the American Physical Therapy Association uh, website can help you find pelvic floor physical therapists in your area, the International Pelvic Pain Society website, and also the Pelvic Pain Education website has a find a provider function that can help find a healthcare professional function that can help you find specialists in your area. And then once you find those specialists, hold on to them <laughs> with everything that you have. And how do you do that? But let me tell you, I think the biggest mistake that people make is they just ship the patient off to a specialist and then that's it. You don't communicate with that specialist. And, and inevitably, if you do that as a primary care physician, the patient comes back to you tired, frustrated, angry, et cetera, or they may not even come back to you. So if you communicate with those specialists and get their input and recommendations for how to manage the patient. That will make your life and the patient's life a lot easier. So communication, really do put time aside in your clinical practice to 
make that phone call to talk to the specialist or send that email off, encrypted email, protected, HIPAA compliant email to to communicate with specialists. And that two-way communication will do wonders for your ability to manage the patient and deal with flares and things like that. It will make it easier for the patient because now she or he or they are going to have a unified message from all of their doctors and it will make the patient's life better because we now have a plan for how to deal with the pain. We now know that if you have a flare, we can reach out to someone in the specialty group and try to get some ideas for additional pain management. That is a lot of amazing resources. Thank you for sharing those. I I think that's so helpful. And sounds like you do work in a dream setting. So your patients are very lucky. (laughs) But I want to emphasize that we built that dream setting. You know, I've now practiced in three different settings and each time I've moved uh, and I went from academics to community practice to the VA and each time I've moved there was there were no resources for pelvic pain and we literally had to find the clinicians that were interested in managing the patients we had to encourage everyone to become educated by attending lectures and webinars and annual meetings and then we just communicated with each other because if you don't communicate with each other it's very hard and frustrating to take the brunt of all the chronic pain patients right it's just we need as physicians we have to support each other just like we have to support our patients. I want to be mindful of time because I think you said you need to be somewhere at eight. Um, so I, I just was hoping for one last question, and Beth, maybe if you have another one too, but how do you counsel your patients about the long-term prognosis when they have persistent pelvic pain? You know, I tell them chronic pain is no different than diabetes. If you do the things that can make your pain better, which include interventions that I may prescribe to you, but also things that you have to do for your self-care, then what's going to happen is you are going to get better slowly over time. And somewhere around three to six months is when you'll start noticing the biggest improvements. And hopefully by a year, you'll have a much, much better quality of life. It's not that you'll never have pain. It's just that you should have less pain, less frequent pain flares. And you should be able to know how to manage those pain flares. And so, you know, because we haven't quite figured out how to get rid of the central nervous system and the brain, which is really the main regulator of pain, we haven't quite figured out how to cure pain. But that doesn't mean that we cannot make pain better. So that's what I tell my patients. And I tell them it's no different than diabetes, right? We know why people become diabetics. And sometimes it takes a combination of medications and dietary changes and lifestyle changes for you to keep the diabetic flares away. And as long as we can do that, you can live a very good life, even if you're a diabetic. And patients get it. You know, I think when we talk to our patients, they completely get it. Yeah, I think that's such a helpful framework. I really have no other questions. I mean, the only thing we like to end with usually is, you know, any main take-home point for our listeners or anything that you'd like to plug. So, yes, I do have a take-home message. And the take-home message is that We now know a lot more about chronic pain in general, and we know that the patients that show up in our practices with what we all identify as a very typical chronic pain behavior or chronic pain symptoms is well documented and substantiated by a lot of scientific evidence. So please believe the patients. Just because there is no physical or, uh, you know, peripheral noxious stimulus that is causing the pain, It does not mean that the pain does not 
exist or that the patient is not feeling pain. So trust starts by validating the patient's symptoms. And the second thing is be patient with yourself and with the patient. We can't fix pain, especially chronic pain, in one visit. It is completely unreasonable to expect to figure out what is causing the patient's chronic pain that's been around for years in one visit. It's just not feasible. Sometimes it takes searching. It takes multimodal therapy. Get away from that single diagnosis habit, right? It takes time. And I tell you what, I have not yet met a patient who has not been patient once you explain that to them. Most of them say, oh, okay, Dr. Lambu, as long as you're willing to hang in there and you believe me, I'm willing to work with that. Most of them are really, really reasonable. So we need to take down those barriers where we don't communicate with our patients. And as it turns out, our patients actually will do quite well. And then the last thing that I have to say is just know um, that you really can make a huge difference in a patient's life by just using the right words. And you can make more difference than any medication or therapy that you can prescribe by just communicating with the patient and using the right kind and empathetic and compassionate words. So that's my take-home message. I love it. Thank you so, so much. And this has been just super helpful and I think a great framework. So thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com slash knowledge food to get your weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Madison Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on the website, Chris the Chew Man Shoe on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And a reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Create your account today. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And thanks to Stuart for composing our theme music as always, and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Thanks so much and have a nice day. Thank you.